Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. Thanks for joining me. This week, my guest is Allison Vlog. I'm going to keep this introduction brief because this is a long podcast episode, folks. We go past the two-hour mark on this, and I'll tell you what, I could have talked to Allison for several hours more. She's a fascinating individual. She's a birder. She's a bird-watching guide. She's a writer, and she's an adventurer. I really appreciate and admire people who pave their own way in this world, and Allison is absolutely someone who's doing that. Uh, We'll go into what she's been up to the last year or so, but suffice it to say, she's kind of delved into uh, travel, adventure, self-discovery, an exploration of people and the places around her, and she's been using birds and bird watching as the vehicle to kind of take her to those places. So without further ado, I'm going to step away and let you guys listen to this episode of the podcast with Allison Vlog. All right, so this is going to be kind of an unusual podcast, a little bit different format. Uh, I'm back up here at Black Duck the old church we're sitting here at the old apple cider vinegar vat table the old church pews i'm joined by allison villag who uh kind of serendipitously came uh i came upon i guess uh, a couple weeks ago she sent me an email she had kind of stumbled upon uh, black duck and some of the stuff i was doing on the internet while she was on this year-long gap year slash pilgrimage slash examination of all things bird like in the the lower 48 uh i've only got you know a, a cursory understanding actually of what she's been doing but uh the email she sent me and the conversations we've had on the phone subsequently have have piqued my interest substantially uh i was excited to get to spend some time with her today and talk with her and kind of what we're going to do here is you know I have no idea how long this is going to take it I'm sure it'll be the normal at least an hour but uh, Allison actually asked if she could interview me for a writing project that she's working on this kind of opus of sorts that she's uh, compiling on these trips and uh, kind of discussed a little bit about some of the questions what subject matter she was looking for and I had a bunch of questions I wanted to ask her. So I said, why don't we just have this super uh, organic conversation here, like first meeting each other, and uh, we'll just record it as a podcast. You know, I get a little content out of it, and then she's got, you know, a recorded verbatim record of our conversation, any questions she asks, and she can use that for her purposes and devices. But anyway, Allison, thank you very much. 
Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here and to meet you, and I really appreciate you making time out of your busy season to have this talk. Um, so, yeah, just a little bit about what I'm doing. Please, yeah. So I have a pretty strong interest in waterfall as well. I work up on Lake Superior in the Great Lakes, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and I work at a bird observatory where I count migrating water birds, so ducks, grebes, loons, geese, and have always had an appreciation for that type of bird. Working there, I have a lot of interface with birders, bird watchers, and I've also done quite a bit of guiding for serious birders uh, in places like Alaska, Borneo, northern Michigan for various uh, specialty birds that people just want to come see. And although people would call me a birder, I consider myself to be more of a bird watcher. Um, a lot of birders are very concerned about getting a good list and adding a lot of numbers to that list. And it's a form of collecting to me, and uh, it just it appreciates numbers over essence of a lot of these really cool birds. And a popular thing for birders to do is called a big year, where they will take a year and they will go out into whatever area they decide is like their jurisdiction. It could be a state, it could be a county, it could be the world, it could be North America. And they go out and they try to see as many species of birds for an entire year in this area. And I thought, well, it'd be really cool to do a big year, but instead of focusing so much on the numbers of this list, I thought it'd be really cool to uh, focus on the birds and celebrate their essence instead of their status, like whether they're rare, whether they're common, just seek out these observations of birds throughout North America. And in doing that, focus especially on either vulnerable species of birds or areas that are important to concentrations of birds. And so in January, I left northern Michigan, where I'm from, and traveled down to Florida and started working my way around the lower 48, uh, just visiting places that are important to birds and figuring out, you know, why they're important to people as well and uh, just seeking out common ground between these spaces and how we interpret these spaces and trying to just jump into the history too and it's been like this really amazing natural history and human history class that I never was taught in high school or college yeah you know I uh man I got about 10,000 questions but so <laughs> that's mutual you're uh so like how do you find yourself to these how do you find yourself to like these different places and like what are you doing like I know you said you were just last week you were kind of assisting with a a black rail study, but like what other sorts of things have you been doing in this pursuit? Yeah, they've been really varied. So some of the things that I've been using for, uh, I guess, a basis for where I should go and what I should focus on, there's this organization called the American Bird Conservancy that has been, um, I guess, a lot more active in being a strong voice for, for birds and what they need. And they put out this book called um, The 500 Most Important Places to Birds in North America. 
and I knew there was no way that I was going to get to all of those 500 places this year, but they had divided that into different types of ecosystems, and I thought, you know, I can try to get to a representative place in every one of these ecosystems, and through that, uh, just build this network of stories. Um, some of my favorite ones from this year have been the border wall in the southwest. Uh, that's just been an area that's been pretty contentious for the last four or five years. And Is that wall, is that inhibiting any sort of like bird migrations? It totally is. Um, a lot of birds, of course, can migrate and fly over the wall, but one of the species that actually is really vulnerable in the U.S. is called the ferruginous pygmy owl. It's this really adorable, really feisty uh bird that takes prey about the size of itself they're super plucky and um, they're only found in lower texas and then southern arizona very localized here and it's important for anything to have like gene pool across places mm -hmm. so that or gene flow so that they can maintain a good genetic base and not have problems with inbreeding and ferruginous pygmy owls because they're not a migratory bird as we think of most birds migrating they just they move short distances and they don't fly high the fence is actually too high for them to fly over and are so, they ground nesters no they nest in like saguaro um, cavities yeah. or other things so they they can but the the border wall i forget the exact height of it i don't want to misquote that but uh it is too high for ferruginous pygmy owls to fly over and from other wildlife perspectives, like the southwestern subspecies of pronghorn is also really scarce, and that wall really cuts their movements and cuts parts of the herd off from each other. And so, yeah, just like traveling along that and driving the southernmost roads when I could and seeing this huge thing that was bisecting a part of the desert where, you know, if you just, if you set me down there and there was no wall there, it would all look like the same um and then when you go further east so i started west in arizona and continued east just following the southernmost roads for as far as i could and when you get to lower texas you have the rio grande that's separating the united states and mexico and a lot of those sites right now just have really heavy uh, almost militarized law enforcement presence and for example one afternoon um, we were having a picnic at this park called Ansel Duas and it's in extreme southern Texas like about as far south in the U.S. as you can get and on the other side is a Mexican um, version of a county park you know there's playground there there's picnic area there's people there having a good time just like how there is on the American side and you're sitting there and this is late April and hawks are migrating through just hundreds of hawks and we're sitting there drinking Modelo because that's what you do in the afternoon in that part of the country and looking up and watching hawks just fly over the river and following that natural um, pattern of movement and that's funny to see that and to think about how borders are something that we make 
and we decide who belongs on what side and then try to make it so that there isn't crossover, but that's just disrupting a natural rhythm. Mm. Um, that was something that was powerful to see and to contemplate, especially since that day they were preparing that site for a U.S. Senate visit and the uh, amount of law enforcement presence there was even higher than it would be ordinarily. You had guys with like 450 horsepower engines on boats, several of those engines on each boat, and uh, they had machine guns and you could see from their boats that like those boats had taken rounds before and it really is in some ways there there is conflict down there but it's kind of a constructed conflict like if you don't want to play that game you don't have to play it and watching hawks migrating up from Mexico and South America uh, with that backdrop it's just something that I found pretty powerful yeah that's a, that's a wild juxtaposition it, it also brings to mind you know like I'm so keyed in to the like uh, these waterfowl migrations, you know, starting up in the Arctic and coming down this way, and you, especially being in Arkansas, you kind of tend to think that like this is the end of it, like this is the bottom of the Mississippi Flyway. Uh, but you know, people don't think about. I don't think a lot of folks think about that. It's not just like ducks and geese that are migrating. You have all all these different birds that are migrating constantly, especially at night. You know, like I've heard these statistics about like if you could like turn the lights on in the middle of the night and just look up at the sky, you would just see millions of birds migrating. Uh, and yeah, I never even, I totally think about hawks as just like a resident species. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about them migrating. Yeah. No, a lot of them do. You have some like red tails. They're probably the most common hawk everywhere in mm -hmm. North America. And they're shorter distance migrants, but there's a different kind of hawk called a Swainson's hawk. And they even look a little bit more migratory than a red tail. You know, they have longer wings, a longer tail. It looks like they're just built for those longer flights. And they nest as far north as Alaska. Not many of them nest there. Most of them are more of a prairie state and province bird. But some of them do nest in Alaska, and then they winter down in Argentina. And it's just insane to think about a bird making that journey every year and to to think about all the different things that it's going to encounter um one of the places where i count ducks is called manitou island and it's off of uh, the keweenaw peninsula and the upper peninsula of michigan it's just about five miles offshore and this spring I was counting out there. It's really cool. It's uninhabited. And I live in a lighthouse when I'm out there that, oh, I, share gnarly, with, yeah. that I share with uh, hundreds of mice, hundreds less when I leave. But uh, it's so cool standing there because it's one of the points of the lake where you can't see across to the other side. It's just it feels like you're at the end of the world. And there's a kind of hawk called a rough-legged hawk, and they don't usually make it down to Arkansas in the winter. They nest up on the tundra in the Arctic Circle, and they don't even come far south of there every winter. But when their prey cycle, which is lemmings, when that's on a dip, they do come down further south. Oh, and, really? Yeah. They're, they're like on one of those, uh, where like the lynx and the snowshoe hare kind of prey cycles? Exactly. Yep. There's a couple birds that are like that. Rough-legged hawks, snowy owls are another one. 
Um, so in the years where their prey is just tanking in the Arctic, which is just a natural four or five year cycle, they'll they'll come down further. And last year was one of those really, really good rough-legged years. Most hawks don't like to fly across water, and they need a really narrow set of conditions to do that. And there was this day where I was standing on this island and facing north, and birds are flying north because it's spring. And I watched, I think, 10 or 11 rough-legged hawks set out across the water, And it's always so cool standing there and watching them go and just imagining the places that they're going that I've never been and I might never get to. And especially watching those birds go in the spring when you know that they started out in the Arctic last fall, successfully wintered, and now they're on their way back. Like Their genes are the ones that deserve to get passed on. And there was a light headwind this day, and I was surprised that so many hawks were going north. And sure enough, you know, I was keeping track. An hour later, nine of those had come back, and one of them hadn't. And you always wonder, you're like, well, what happened to that tenth one? Uh, Did it meet some horrible fate out there? Did it keep going? And about two hours after I had seen the last hawk leave, I see this rough leg coming in, and it's really, really tired. It's flying low, and it was a really calm day on Superior, and I'm following it in my spotting scope. And it's still maybe 200 yards offshore. And I can actually see where its wings are dragging the water, which is not something I've ever seen before. I'm like, this hawk is really tired. It's wore out, man. It's trying to get to the other side. Yeah, and it's so close, but so tired. And so herring gulls, they're kind of assholes. And... About half an hour before, I had seen a flicker, which is a type of woodpecker coming Mm in. They call them yellowhammers, too. And they're super migratory, and it was tired. It hit the water. The herring gulls ate it. And what are they? Are they just like dive bombing and grabbing them? Yeah, they work in a pack. And um, yeah, if something gets tired, there's usually enough of them to just kind of knock it into the water. And if it's a land bird, once it hits the water, it's not going to be able to get out very Mm -hmm. easily. And then they eat it. It's brutal. Do they just, like, rip it to pieces? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. And it's they can do that with hawks, too, uh, if they manage to catch the hawk in a position where the gulls have an advantage. And so I'm watching this rough leg come in after seeing a half hour ago what happened to the flicker, which I also really happen to like. And... The hawk's wings are dragging more and more and more. And it actually went into the water, which I had never seen before and I had never heard of anybody seeing. And I was sitting there watching it. I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. (laughs) You know, you're human instinct. How close to the shore was it at that point? Uh, Probably still 200 yards. Your human instinct, you know, is to want to save it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Lake Superior was still really cold. It was May. There was no saving it, at least not not for me without a boat. And sure enough, the gulls noticed it, and they came in, and I was like, no, just like I was having to will myself to watch because it was something that, you know, I wanted to know the outcome of but didn't really want to see it happening. And the hawk had enough fight in it that it was able to fight off the gulls, and it was able to fight off an eagle, and... It's slowly drifting into shore, and 
you know, I'm thinking, oh no, like, did we trap too many mice out of the lighthouse because <laughs> rough legs eat mice? I'm like, hopefully there's still prey left on the island for it. And the galls came in one last time, and that was what gave the hawk, like, what it needed. It was able to get up and fly and fly that last 50 yards to shore because it had drifted in quite a bit at that point. And it was crazy just how much. I had felt invested in that hawk watching it. Like I could almost feel what it was like to be out with so much water beneath and to have land close, but to have just exhausted the stores so much that it wasn't able to make that. And that's one of the things that's been really cool about this year for me is that I have been in a space where it's just been intentional observation and feeling vulnerable a lot of the time myself and I think that that has helped me understand a lot more the struggles that bird populations go through not just because of anything that humans have done to them but just their daily their daily lives like they're badass and everything that they do is for survival Um, one of my favorite quotes about bird migration on the Great Lakes is by a guy named Ken Kaufman, who's a really prolific bird writer. And it says something along the lines of uh, warblers, which are some of those little birds, Jonathan, that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. like flying across water at night. Uh, They don't die of old age. They're going to be prey. They're going to maybe have a window collision during their migration, but they don't make it to old age. And that's just a crazy concept for a human to think about, you know. Well, you know, it's uh, – and I've heard this given amongst hunters, and, and some of it is a – I mean, it it can definitely be a kind of effective existential observation, and I think sometimes it devolves a little bit too much into – I don't know, just a little bit of self-righteousness. But – like yeah critters don't critters don't die like peacefully with their families you know like they die from being ripped apart by another animal or some like slow starvation event or something you know like if it does get old enough to where its teeth are ground down you know maybe it can't feed itself anymore and and I, and i'm saying that because i think a lot of hunters especially like with the kind of the modern North American conservation model, there's a, there's a justification, you know, for what I think is well-intentioned ethical hunting, especially, you know, when you're trying to make, uh, you make something as quick and effective and immediate a death as possible saying that this is, you know, oftentimes exponentially less trauma inducing death, you know, less anguish involved hopefully than it would be if this thing got old and starved and couldn't feed itself or you know we've all seen like nature is metal on instagram and just i mean like a pack of dogs that just rip something eat something while it's alive it's just brutal you know and and a lot of these predators too you know like they're they're focusing on the the least protected aspects of these animals so they're like ripping its guts out you know and it's uh yeah man you know mother nature just these natural cycles are uh, they're like incredibly well orchestrated, but 
there's a there's a brutality to it. Uh, you know, I kind of wonder. So with with this in, intention of observation that you have towards towards birds, specifically waterfowl, how do you interpret? You know, like some of these activities that I'm I'm like participating in. You know, like the in and and look, you know, like I, I talk about this holistic nature of what I'm doing and I try and have reverence for animals without being precious about it. Uh, and, but you know, there does come a point, you know, to where like I'm investing a lot of energy into shooting birds in the head, you know? Uh, and yeah. How do you just like, how does that sit with you? How do you, how do you interpret those intentions? I think a lot of that depends on the nuance even of those intentions behind the action. Um, for me, I only have a problem with the way that I've experienced hunting if the focus is on the killing. Um, the killing is part of it, for sure. It has to be. But there's harvest, and there's the hunt. And like you were saying, there can be a more holistic approach to it like yeah you're going to be shooting birds in the head <laughs> but, but what is the reason behind it is it because you want to be shooting birds in the head or does it go beyond that is it a connection to a place a connection to a different type of life uh, is it a way to feed yourself to feed your family one of the things that I've sensed this year is that Americans have just this huge disconnect from the things that we consume and yeah I mean that's a mouthful like that's beyond we're just talking about food just the idea yes. of consumption and where it comes from and the, the you know that oftentimes the pain involved in us sourcing those things yeah and those are things that are really convenient you could say to outsource because then we don't have to deal with mm -hmm. it directly mm -hmm. But it's still happening somewhere. It's just, you know, somewhere else, not in my backyard. And that's actually something that I would love to hear your perspective and your take on how, for you, there are different parts of the process and it's not just the killing. Um, you know, I think it's... I think it's like a lot of the foundational things in life that uh, it can be it can be what you want it to be, right? So like I've talked a couple times before and since, you know, I think I thought I kind of came up with this and then I've heard other people talk about it or read it in books from before my time. But like this idea of like uh, food fighting and fucking kind of being like foundational t to humanity and and all of those things and, when I, and again when i say like fighting yes that could be like physical altercation but i i, I kind of mean it more in like the broader sense of some sort of struggle sure. right but so food and fighting like there there is no there can be nobility in fighting there's nobility in struggling there's nobility in resilience i think there's nobility in defending uh, vulnerable others, you know, or defending 
defending ideals that I think are worth protecting and carrying on. Like, I think there can be nobility in that. And it can also be bloodlust and psychopathic and just othering of other people and allowing ourselves to do God awful stuff to each other. Like, so there's, I think you have this spectrum where there can be like beautiful beauty and kind of the pinnacle of human expression. And then you can have this deep twisted perversion of it. Right. Same thing with, you know, fucking right. Like it can be making children and being in love with somebody and all of that stuff. And it can be like the dark twisted stuff, like from law and order. Right. And with food as well. Like these are all, these can all be like the most soul filling and nourishing activities. And they can also be like perverted with gluttony and a lack of intention and a lack of consideration. And so I think to me, hunting, it, it, it's a part of this kind of trying to live in a mindful way and, and be an active participant in my life. Excuse me. Uh, and so, like, you know, there's what you would call, like, a slob hunter, right? And that's, it's almost more of a caricature because, you know, I don't really deal with a lot of people like this. But, you know, just whatever you think of when you think of, like, some hunter just throwing bullets at something or whatever. And truthfully, like, that, the North American model of conservation has... <clears throat> has made that largely unpalatable to most hunters, right? So there's not, like, a ton of people engaging in that. I don't. I really don't feel like. Now, there are various levels of, I think, a lot of people that consider them hunters are, uh, I don't know if you want to call them fair weather. It's, uh, you know, like, probably most duck hunters go on a couple of duck hunts a year. Most deer hunters, they hunt, like, opening weekend of gun season, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got this whole deeper spectrum of like, you've got that and you've got people that are like making self bows and napping arrowheads. And like, there's even places with adlatl seasons and stuff. Right. So there's like this spectrum that you can exist on it with. Uh, to me, it's, uh, I'm thinking of that thought of like unto the whole person. Like I'm trying to live this full life. I'm trying to investigate how I feel about things. Uh, kind of come up with my own set of well-informed ethics around it uh and and that goes hand in hand with like a unflinching appreciation and like reverence for these critters right and 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 i try and be real honest with it too like i spend a ton of time you know delving into like the vocalizations of these uh, these birds and different animals that i'm pursuing right their eating habits and like how that morphs and twists from week to week in a season, you know, like I can tell you what squirrels are going to be eaten at the end of August, as opposed to the middle of September, as opposed to Halloween. Right. Cause they're, they're bouncing from food source to food source. So, you know, they'll be eating pine cones and you'll get this slightly turpentine taste to them when they're eating on pine nuts. Right. And then they'll switch in my experience, they switch to hickory nuts after that which is like a great tasting squirrel. Then they'll switch to acorns. You know, it's one of the reasons that like a wood duck tastes so good. Cause yep. they're sitting around eating those, uh, acorns all the time. 
but like you know you're you're having to immerse yourself in this exploration of flora and fauna and the cyclical nature of of the wild world and you know the the aspect of all of these pursuits that I enjoy least are is is figuring out how to contend with other people you know like especially duck hunting in arkansas it's like it's like NASCAR here. Yeah, right? I I'm so curious about that because in Michigan we have duck hunting as well, but it's not nearly as large a part of our culture as it seems to be here. And yeah, I was reading a little bit about, you know, public hunting or pub, public land hunting versus private land hunting and um just the chaos that can happen on public land on opening day of duck season. Yeah, it gets rowdy. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you've experienced or oh, you yeah, tried yeah, it? Yeah. 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 I mean, I've slept at boat ramps and raced to holes and, you know, not as much as some people. Like, I don't like it, to be honest with you. It takes me out of what I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, I, I feel I'm, like that would take me out of the environment and the mindset that I was trying to share with. Yeah. I mean, like I'm, I, I feel like the competition aspect, like I'm competing with myself and my skill set. Uh, I don't really feel in competition with animals. Like uh, I'm not trying to beat them. Uh, I think more I'm trying to convince them, you know, as opposed to like beat them and win and dominate them. Uh, and yeah, that that kind of pugilism, the human pugilism part, it takes me out of it, and it it also has you competing on a stage that like you ultimately you can't win, you know, uh, and it makes people cheat and and just show their asses, and it makes like good people act like jerks, and like I hear a lot about like people like you gotta be mad at them birds man you gotta be mad at them like the implication is that you're saying take it seriously scout put effort and all that you can do all that without being mad like i think they're beautiful Mm -hmm. i love the sound of wind like going over bird like duck wings like oh yeah there's nothing like a big flock dude it it can be a couple of them i like little peeps i like you know i like gadwalls you know i like Mm -hmm. All the different vocalizations of birds. I'm fascinated with like speckle belly yodels and that call and response uh, type interaction you get with them and yes. and all of this stuff, right? And I'd take that, like if I couldn't shoot them, I would take all of that still. Uh, and it's a weird, it is a weird dichotomy to like appreciate and like I really do feel like love and value these animals so much and then kind of like the penultimate pen, penultimate expression of that is like killing them right and but but you know like you can i could wax poetic about like absorbing energy and this transfer of energy and all that stuff and i think some of that stuff is there too uh and when i say not be precious about it like i don't I don't usually refer to this idea of like I'm harvesting an animal. Like I'm killing it. Like that's what it is. I'm not going to, I can dress it up with a bunch of stuff, but I'm killing this animal. Right. Uh, and I don't think that in itself is ennoble. Uh, 
And like, I don't, me personally, like I don't put a mouthful of grass in like a deer's mouth after I kill it and like say a little prayer over it. Uh, and I'm not shitting on anybody who does do that. The way that I show and display reverence, I mean, to me, I think some of this is like, you ever hear like different love languages? You know, there's like words of affirmation and there's like physical touch and there's acts of service or whatever, right? Like that kind of comes into play with this, right? Like my way of showing, you know, reverence or appreciation for this uh, is through like whole animal usage, sharing like the bounty of it with people that are important to me, like friends and family, you know, like I've, I've said before, like no one shares wild game with people they don't care about. Like, you know, you're not going to give someone you just briefly encounter that. Like you're going to give it to someone who you think is going to appreciate it. Who's going to appreciate the story behind it. Who's going to appreciate the effort that it went into it. Who is going to appreciate the intention behind it. Right. And so you start building all these layers of like family and human connection. And, and I think, in my particular case, I have a lot of associations with people who I'm the, I'm the connection to like that way of life for them. So it kind of brings them into it and gets them closer to these because, you know, the, the killing, the act is often anticlimactic, you know, it's, it is a moment in this entire quest, you know, but it's like the walking in the failure the stumbling, the falling, the getting close and not succeeding, the <clears throat> being completely wrong, the, all of that stuff. The, I mean, my favorite part of all of it is getting better and better and better and better at it. And like, you know, like when I first started trying to hunt that black bear, right? I didn't know what black bears were eating. I didn't know where they lived. I didn't know anything about it, right? And it took me 14 days of hunting to find a pile of bear shit, right? And then I'm picking that thing apart with a stick and figuring out what it was eating, you know? And I didn't know what a black gum was. And then I figured out that's what it was eating. It was eating those black gums. And that's why that pile of scat was like purple inside. And then finding when they're eating on acorns, it looks like a pile of crunchy peanut butter. And like being able to tell how old this stuff is because of, well, this is what the water, the moisture conditions are like. There's, I mean, all of this stuff. That's having that growing that sense of competency is, is my favorite part of it. Um, and yeah, long winded answer. Yeah. Um, I feel like by noticing those sorts of things when you are in pursuit, be it with the goal being of killing or the goal being to just see it, take a photo, whatever, you're going to develop new types of awareness and just learn a lot more about what makes that animal tick. Um, one of my more memorable uh, encounters this year was with a kind of bird called a spotted owl. Mm -hmm. And they're so interesting that you could, and people have written books about their conservation because uh they basically shut down logging in yeah, the yeah, Pacific yeah. Northwest. And dude, and yeah. so in the in like land management and like the hunting realms, like the spotted owl is like this uh touchstone event. You know, it's like spotted owl, prairie chicken. It actually I almost think it facilitates sometimes uh 
like these big businesses like oil companies and stuff, it facilitates conservation because like the big fear is like, man, they're going to find a find a gopher tortoise or something in here and tell us we can't drill. So we're going to try and keep we're going to try and build up as much good karma on this front as possible to keep that from happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But anyway, yeah, the spotted owl. Yeah. So it was a bird that I had never seen before. And this is like a, this is like Northwest. Yeah. So there's a couple subspecies. There's one in the Northwest. There's one in California. And then there's one called the Mexican spotted owl. That's all in like Arizona, New Mexico, and then down into Mexico. All right. Yeah. I just associate it with like Timberland up in Oregon. Yeah. That's how most people do because that was the one, the population that got the most publicity. Uh, to go off on a little tangent with that, Please. Uh, barred owls, which are super common in the East, huge, they're great. Um, huge, like, hugely culturally significant to uh, like Southeastern hunters, like specifically turkey hunters. Yeah, I actually listened to that podcast yesterday. Oh, did you? Yeah, it's cool, right? Some of those guys are good. They're real good, and the crow calls. Like I didn't, I've never heard of anybody imitating a crow before. That was that was awesome. Oh yeah, crow calls and owl calls. I mean, that's how you like. That's how you locate gobblers in the south. Yeah, which you know, like I knew that, but I had never connected those dots because sometimes I'll be owling around dawn up in Michigan, and I'll Mm -hmm. get like a turkey to respond to an owl call. Yeah, you can get. I'll tell you what. Uh, you can get a turkey to gobble off of all manner of noises, like mm-hmm. shutting car doors when you get out to hunt, car alarms going off, dogs barking, airplanes flying by, anything. I used to, we used to raise like heritage breed turkeys, and like just when you pulled up to the house and like shut the door, <laughs> I mean they would just, yeah. And I don't, I don't quite understand. I don't know that anyone knows why they shot gobble. Do you, I'm taking to another place, but do you, uh, excuse me, is any of your research revolve around turkey populations? No, uh, not yet. I would like to delve into a little bit how they were so successfully reintroduced into the Midwest because yeah. that's like one of the few positive things happening with bird conservation right now. Uh, wild success is turkeys basically were extirpated from Michigan and mm-hmm. now they're super common again. Like, And you know, they're in, they're in deep decline in Arkansas. That's interesting. What are some of the reasons that are being posited for that? Uh, I mean, I think it's a lot of stuff, and I'm I'm no expert by any means, but uh, so I think you know, predators is like something that people bring up a lot, and you know, being a ground nesting bird, they're like vulnerable to a lot of predation. You know, the the poults, the eggs. You know, that's kind of some of that as a result of, you know, in the 70s, fur price, southern fur prices were very, very high. Like, you know, in the mid 70s, you might get $25 for a raccoon pelt in the 70s. So, I mean, I don't know what that would equate to now. Like, I mean, shit, if I got $25 for raccoon pelts, like, <laughs> I mean, they're worth, I mean, you might get $2 for one now. But, and there was like a weird, I've had it explained to me that, so the fur market, the biggest fur markets are in Asia and Eastern Europe, right? Uh, In the 70s, there was like this kind of the start of like the economic growth in China. And just the average size of like a Chinese woman who was like uh, buying a fur coat was smaller than like a Russian lady. So Southern furs aren't as you know, like a, a, 
a fur bear like a coon or something up in Michigan is going to be bigger and have a thicker fur than they are going to have down here in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So like southern furs were better for the Asian fur market because you could make coats that didn't weigh as much for smaller statured people. So it like it drove the prices up in the south. So you had all these people that were like supplementing income or making income by trapping you know a lot of raccoons coyotes and then there was like water trapping for like beaver and mink and stuff right the the bottom has fallen out of that market so like very few people are trapping mm-hmm. uh and so i think that has there's like a glut of an un, and with some of these species like coyotes and raccoons do really well at like the human wild interface. Yep. So there's like more coyotes than there's ever been in the history of North America. You know, and there's like all these raccoons and stuff. So you have that predation factor. I think here in the Delta where everything is really flat and you have these cycles of flooding, I think it's just, and, and also with these kind of weird flood events that we're starting to have with like kind of climate change. I think it's, it's hard on that front. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think they probably should have made some changes to hunting and the, the way they were hunted in Arkansas earlier than they did. Uh, like they took away fall turkey season some years back. We just have a spring season now. Uh, and I, I mean, truthfully, I think probably a lot of turkeys during the fall season got killed over corn feeders. Like just people shot them when they were deer hunting. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Um, and it's strange, too, because, like, Missouri, like, the, the surrounding states, like, Mississippi's got better turkey populations. Missouri does. Kansas does. Oklahoma does. Texas does. Arkansas is just, like, a stinker as far as turkey populations. Mm-hmm. You're going to find them. Like, you won't find almost any in the Delta. You're going to find them in, like, the mountains. Like, so northwest Arkansas, the Ozark Mountains, the Wachita's. There's other places, but those would kind of be, like, the main places you'd find them in Arkansas. Uh Super duper fascinating bird. Uh, I mean, you, I'd I'd enter, I'd I'd bring Regal into the conversation. Um, tough, big, tough birds. Like I killed my first turkeys this year, and I'm so used. I've had I have my hands on so many birds all the time, but I'm used to waterfowl, mm-hmm. and like, I mean, turkey. And I raised turkeys, and I still don't think I comprehended this. Like a big, mature tom turkey man's got a head like a softball. Like, big, solid, dense bone. Doesn't look like it should be able to fly. And huge wingspan, can get up and go, can run really fast. It's like this pterodactyl, wildly cool birds. Um, you know, that crazy waddle and that caruncle and, like, their their feet look like velociraptors. And then you have this, like, vestigial 12-inch on a monster bird, like a 12-inch vestigial plump of feathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just like that iridescence on the body feathers. Gorgeous, too. man. Yeah. And, like, I saw, I got to observe two different species of turkeys this year. So I hunted, uh, uh, what was I hunting? I guess I was hunting Rio's. And I was hunting in Oregon, too, which, like, they're a totally introduced species in Oregon. I think they got, they got Rios and Miriams up in Oregon, I think. But uh, I was hunting in Kansas as well. And, like, this guy I was hunting with from Mississippi, he was like, dude. He was like, you'd never. It's a different species in, in a lot of the south. And uh, he was like, dude, you'd never get those Easterns. I think it's Easterns, yeah. 
So Easterns and kind of switch to Rios. It's like you would, those Easterns are like way more persnickety than these Rios are, man. Like they're not going to come in like this. They're not going to tolerate this level of obtrusiveness from us. Uh, and it was just, man, it was just neat to see. And it was neat to see, like I'm used to hunting thick stuff and it was neat mm-hmm. to see animals where you could see a long way or like in Oregon, I was hunting this stuff that, I mean, it looked like the closest thing I've seen to it is like Switzerland when I was like in this driving through the Alps, like driving through Zurich. And I'm like in these like valleys. I mean, that's what it looked like. And there's this gobblers going off and it's just this cacophony ricocheting off of these, these like rocky outcroppings. Yeah. Um, the sound moves in ways out there that it just doesn't Oh appear. dude, man. And it's, 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 there's a, there's a vastness to it that is for me, because I'm, I so associate the outside with like, kind of being surrounded by it 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 was almost unsettling you know but like in a really cool way mm-hmm. but anyway man that was a long divergence from <laughs> the spotted owl yeah so a great one though um anyway barred owls have been one of my kind of markers of whether a campsite is good or not this year i've just been sleeping in my truck usually with the windows open and if there's barred owls it's a good spot uh been doing that since January and it hasn't failed me yet. Do you sleep in the the cab or the back of it? I sleep in the back. I've got a sleeping platform. It's just made out of plywood. I have a little rug on top of that. I have a yoga mat on top of that and I have to wake up a couple times in the night, turn over just to change the pressure points. But I don't mind doing that because I'm lucky that I can fall back asleep right away. And also I just I like seeing if my surroundings have changed in the night. You're not like you don't have an air mattress or anything in there? No. Dude, you're on some, you're on a crunchy exploration. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the movements this year for me have been, you know, about being uncomfortable, about being out of a place that feels Mm. secure and in my comfort zone because I just, it's grown me a lot as a person and I think I've developed a lot more appreciation both for the world around me and for people that have to be in those uncomfortable spaces without choosing it for themselves. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Yeah. and we've kind of talked a little bit about this on some conversations, but you, you talked about like a lot of like older men questioning you about like, are you traveling? Are you doing this trip alone? Are you by yourself? And you've brought up a couple of times about like, you know, there is some discomfort, you know, sometimes involved in some of these places maybe you're going to. And I imagine it's like not knowing how you're going to be interpreted or, uh, I mean, you know, if we're being frank, there's probably like an element of like, physical safety that you have to like kind of you know remain just aware of and so uh but i want to bring it up because we're, we're talking about like, some of this like this growth that comes from like discomfort and in the observation uh, intention of observation so like what have you seen around that uh have you found any of that to be a hindrance or have you have you found that to be like a uh like kind of a doorway into some stuff you're looking for the only way that it's felt like a hindrance for me has been just and I guess the animosity that having that question repeated over and over again builds um I'm from the north and it's not that uncommon for a woman to be alone in Mm. outdoor spaces up there and I try to be really respectful of the culture and whatever places I'm going to just people live their lives differently and a lot of that is not better or worse it's just different there are aspects that are better or worse but not all of it is and 
so the South has been a lot different from anywhere else I've been this year and that I have felt really out of place traveling alone and the questions I've gotten from older men usually that live there have supported those feelings and they haven't like the questions haven't been asked in a way that have made me feel uncomfortable about the person that's asking them um I think that a lot of that has come out of like their concern for me or just what you're doing is really weird or Mm. you're not supposed to be here by yourself because it's not safe and so I have gotten, but you know, with the but the idea would be that it's not safe because of men. Yes. Right. Yeah, which is, yeah, I'm looking forward to when that changes and trying to be like that person for women. You know, if I can do it, you can do it, and it does. Some of the onus is on us. Like we do have to get out there and want to do it, and take that step but yeah it's definitely not fair that a man should decide that a space is not right for me to be in because of men yeah you know there's definitely some overlap it's weird to be in a space that uh, people interpret you as like not you're not supposed to be there right and that i mean like there's definitely some overlap there I think with you and me uh I you know the south in particular the south has got like a real the south's got like a real fucked up kind of interpretation of chivalry right and it intersects it's it's honestly it has a lot to do with like the the racial narrative down here does too like there was like this idea of like you know that was like one of the justifications for like the clan you know is like uh, you have these uh this idea of like this rapacious black male, you know, animalistic figure that's that is hell bent on attacking the virtue of white womanhood, and like uh, you needed this organized way to uh, not just respond to these like imagined uh, threats, but also to make an example of people to prevent it from happening. You know, and like kind of the big. The big uh, example of that is, uh, what's the name of that, that film? Woodrow Wilson said it was like uh, seeing history written in lightning. Uh, Birth of a Nation, right? And if you, ever, if you watch Birth of a Nation, there's that new movie called The Birth of a Nation about Nat Turner. But Birth of a Nation is just like one of the first kind of feature films ever made. It's uh, the silent film, and it's, it's like uh, white, white actors in blackface you know, uh, like, you know, just with these like racist, uh, ideas about black people, uh, this animal like buffoonery, this attacking white women, you know, like for, you know, I mean, let's be clear. It's like want to rape them or something. Right. And then you have the Ku Klux Klan, the heroes of this movie, the Ku Klux Klan come riding in and, and save white, uh, female virtue. Uh, and so, yeah, there's like some weird, like kind of twisted ideas of chivalry also like some really uh some really beautiful ideas about it as well and you know like the way that motherhood is viewed in the south you know and like the relationship with of like grown men to their mothers you know or like uh so yeah there's like weird layers to it uh do you think 
do you think that some of the discomfort you've experienced from other people's discomfort is what I'm referring to. Do you think that some of that is, I wonder if some of it is, is also that like, uh, it's you're recognizably not Southern. And so there's kind of like a, there's a level of even like suspicion surrounding that too. And then that, that weird interface of that with perhaps this, uh, restructuring of like a normalized gender role. Like it all, there's like, I don't know what to make of this. Yes, absolutely. All of that. Um, I'm very aware of how much I stick out here. I have out of state plates. I drive a fairly distinctive vehicle. I've got a canoe on top of it as if Mm -hmm. it wasn't distinctive enough. I definitely get a lot of looks and if like if yeah you would probably be interpreted as like uh, I don't know like if I saw it'd be like she's a rock climber you know like uh, yeah there's just a it's weird how people you just get used to these lanes that people kind of exist in right Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like I've been out of my lane a lot this year which is been a good growth experience and it's just it's made me appreciate more people that are out of their lane not from their own choosing but just because that's how society is for them Mm -hmm. um yesterday i was getting guests at a station in mississippi uh one of my things this year that's guided my travels is i try to stay off the interstates as much as i can um you just you learn a lot more about a place. When Lots you're of two lane roads, roads and stuff. Yeah, yeah, state highways, even U.S. highways, and driving through a lot of small towns that I never would have known of otherwise. And even just reading the signs that people have in their lawns or listening to the radio, you mm, learn yeah. a lot about how people have get some of that fire brimstone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, there, actually, when I was crossing into Missouri earlier this year, like there was a very angry fire and brimstone show on the radio and I was like wow the person they're describing is like the kind of bar that I want to hang out at so I was like I don't think Missouri is a place for me Um, well you know and you know truthfully Missouri is like Missouri is kind of like Arkansas like you've got one or two kind of like bigger urbanized cities and then everything else is like pretty like small town rule uh and like, you know, in Arkansas, it's like you got Fayetteville and Little Rock. And then, you know, like, I mean, we're right sitting in Brinkley right now. This is a big town for the Delta. This is like 2,200 people. Mm-hmm. You go up the road to Cotton Plant, it's like 300. And I don't even know if there's a gas station in Cotton Plant, you know, or you could run down to Holly Grove or Marvel or uh, this town Marvel actually down the road is a, <clears throat> like, there's not a, you can't buy a McDonald's burger. I mean, there's like. There's not a fast food restaurant there, you know. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm actually kind of interested. You've talked a couple times about how this trip you've been on and the observations that you're making about yourself and about these animals is informing how you interpret different aspects of humanity. You know, you're ta- we're talking about like migratory routes. We're talking about borders. We're talking about being an outlier either by choice or... Uh, place that placed in that position through, you know, societal interpretations. Uh, I don't even know if I have a question about that. I'm just, I'm just saying, I noticed that. Uh, 
No, it's kind of crazy, like, how this trip started off as a thing for me. I was like, I'm going to go to places that are important to birds. I'm going to celebrate the birds that are there and, like, learn about the efforts that are made by people that are connected to them in some way. But as, like, an aside, it's been more about finding common ground with, like, oh, these birds are vulnerable for one reason or another. Like, I'm vulnerable. Um, I feel like I've been living not in a victim mindset by any means, but in a mindset where, you know, I could be prey, like, at any given time. Mm. Um, and it C- doesn't kind of exa- sound... It's kind of exhausting. Can It can, it can, can be. be. Yeah. Like, we're, we're in mid-November now, and it wasn't really until the last month that I realized just how tired I was. And, like, I still love what I'm doing, believe in what I'm doing. I'm really excited to see these stories that I've been gathering come together and create something really beautiful that I think is going to be a, just a nice permanent thing for others to read. But yeah, I am at the point where some days I wake up, I'm like, oh, where am I going to sleep tonight? Don't know. should probably figure that out. And uh, all of a sudden just making those moves ahead of time has become wearying. Um, are you are you like stopping and getting a hotel at all, or is this like all relying on the kindness of strangers? Mostly relying on the kindness of strangers and like my own ability to find good places in national forests, for example, or out west, a lot of BLM land. But mm-hmm. I have met some really, really wonderful people this year. Actually, when I was doing the rail survey down in Louisiana, um, two of the other people that were on it were students at LSU. I had never met him before, but I knew some other people in their program at LSU. It's a big ornithology school. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, if you're passing through Baton Rouge, like, let us know and you can crash at the house. And I was like, hmm, definitely going to keep that one uh, <laughs> in my memory. And sure enough, a few days later, I was like, hey, do you guys mind? And they didn't. And it was really cool to get to know them better and just see all the places where, like, our lives connected uh, he does Swainson's Warbler research, and one of his sites was actually the same canoe put-in that I had used when I went out in Missouri earlier this spring, and he also has some sites here in the Cache River area, and I was just, it was, there's been so many times this year where I've been like, wow, like the connections between things are really, really cool. And that's been something else that I've realized that I've been seeking as this project has gotten more momentum is just like connections and also like a feeling of wholeness. Um, I feel like there's just so much disconnection, especially in my generation right now. Like I'm 29. Most of us are stuck in our phones and uh, really concerned about how we present ourselves on social media and consuming that, consuming everything else and not really slowing down to think about relationships and how to exist in a place kindly. Um, Mm, man, that's a that's a hell of a statement. Yeah. Like my my thing is the year has gone on. Like if you could sum it up in a sentence would be about how to care about the space that you're occupying and that can extend to so much. It can be physical, like, okay, I'm staying at 
somebody's house when I get up in the morning. I know it's going to be early, but so I'm going to make sure I'm going to like make my coffee quietly and do their dishes from dinner last night. Make sure that like I made their space better. That's caring about caring about the space that I'm occupying in the physical sense. Um, in a more metaphorical sense, you absolutely need to care about the space that you occupy. And one of those things for me has been, um, if I see a bird that I know that other people don't always treat kindly, owls are a really good example of this. And this is how we can bring spotted owls back into it. Um, I love it. Yeah, you, I, I like that you kept your eye on that. <laughs> well, they were just so memorable. Um, so there's this thing called eBird. You've probably heard of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a citizen science database where everybody can put their bird sightings in, and it keeps track of lists for you if that's important. And you can also search, for example, oh, I want to see where Gadwall have been being seen. You can search a certain area, and all the recent sightings with Gadwall pop up. There's some birds that are called sensitive species in eBird because people don't treat them kindly, and owls get a lot of pressure from photographers. They're just they're so charismatic, and they've got okay. Some pull I was wondering what. Yeah, it, yeah, they're like really big in popular culture right now. Like, you know, I kind of associate them like. Uh, kind of like hipster tattoos or whatever. <laughs> no, uh, they totally are. But yeah, I was wondering what you meant about like not being treated kindly. And you're just talking about just unrelenting, just pressure, just yeah, people so being like, intrusive. For example, at Whitefish Point, which is one of the places where I work up on Lake Superior, you can watch snowy owls fly across the lake in November. It's the coolest thing. The lake crossing there is only like 16 miles. And usually the heat shimmers so bad on the days they come across from the lake being so much warmer than the air. So you're like standing there and your insulated bib overalls just shaking and you see this thing coming towards you. It's big and white and a blob. That's all you can see in the heat shimmer and you watch it for several minutes. And like you can see the wings, you can see the head finally, like you see the yellow eyes when it's getting to shore. And the snowy owls, when they hit land there, like, they're tired. Um, they need a minute to rest and recover. And snowy owls are probably one of the most popular birds with photographers. And last fall, I remember seeing the snowy that had come across the lake. And it was on a weekend. It was a pretty nice day. And there were just so many people that were, like, getting way too close to it. They had long lenses, whatever. But they still were, like, pushing the bird to the point where it would fly. And that's really valuable energy on a bird that's already exhausted. Yeah. And you're you're messing up from resting, from hunting. Also, that you can get a picture. And, yeah, like... That's been taken a million times before. In the same way, yeah. yeah. So many people have that picture. And you talk to these people, like, nicely, politely, and they just have a hard time recognizing what they're doing is wrong and it just it like these jackasses at yellowstone and oh yeah <clears throat> definitely like a on a i guess like a less of a megafauna scale but it's still like it makes me so mad nothing makes me matter and uh yeah when i see a snowy owl now i make sure that i don't put it in ebird i make sure that nobody else puts it in ebird um that particular snowy 
that was on the beach getting bumped that one weekend last November. Um, I have friends that are professional owl banders that live up there. It's like a very cool owl research site. And they ended up trapping this bird because it just it seemed to be in really rough shape. And they weighed it, and it was the skinniest owl, like the lightest weight snowy owl that they had ever trapped. And it ended up going to a rehabilitator. And I just wish that there was a way to tell all the people that were stressing it that day, like, this bird was already in rough shape and you were not helping it at all. And how do you feel about that? Um, well, you know, that's, so that's kind of a really, <clears throat> that's a neat point of intersect with hunting, like waterfowling. So like, we're talking about banding, right? Yeah. And, and th that's a super important activity as far as waterfowl, um, under, so that was kind of like one of the initial uh, ways to kind of understand some of these waterfowl migration routes, and we've we've garnered a ton of information about it. The problem is, is that ultimately it's just telling you like where it was caught and where it ended up dying, right? Yeah, you don't know anything about all the migrations between that. But there's a place up the road here, probably like six miles from here. This uh, it's a it's a working farm and, and a hunt club. It's called Billy Byers. The guy that runs that place, he's like third generation. His name's Cason Short. And he's done, like, he's fascinated with specs, just like I am, like the greater white-fronted geese, right? And he's been watching for years over there. And he's he's doing some cool stuff with uh, this dude from the Osborne lab down in Monticello. who's like a waterfowl studying lab uh, from a subsect of the University of Arkansas. And they're doing like these telemetry data studies up there, basically where they're putting satellite trackers. Mm -hmm. They're like net catching these birds and they're putting satellite trackers on them. And then they're getting, you know, just like Google or GPS drops off of it. Dude, fascinating. Seeing how, you know, we hear a lot about uh, with waterfowl hunting, you know, just like duck hunting in Arkansas. Man, the birds picked up and moved to the next county. And it's, they're showing like, dude, that bird didn't pick up and move to the next county. That bird went to North Dakota last night. It went like, <laughs> it went like 1,200 miles in 24 hours, flying these crazy speeds. They get up way up high and they get up on these yes. wind currents. They're hauling ass like 130 miles per hour. They go to North Dakota, spend six hours there, turn around, fly back. Or they're like, in three days, they go from Stuttgart, Arkansas down to Argentina and then turn around, make a stop in Honduras, come back up there <laughs> and then sitting on a rice field over here in Brinkley. Uh, which is, man, that stuff is fascinating. And it's, and it's like, you're not getting real time data. It's not like you're following where these birds around are at day to day. Right. So like you Cause know they have to hit a cell tower, right? To download that data. Is that the type of I think so. I think okay. that's what the deal is. Um, but and, you know, that's even, like, turned into a thing to wear. So, you know, like, banded birds are like a trophy in, uh, in, in duck and goose hunting, right? And, but now, like, and it's a trophy because of the rarity of it, right? Even though they put thousands and thousands and thousands on this, just, I mean, I've never killed a band, ever. <laughs> so it's like, some people do, like, uh, people that hunt Canada's, like, they'll have a ton of bands, but it's, I think it's because they, like, trap these resident kind of populations, and then folks can kind of target. Like, they can, they're hunting the same birds. They're not necessarily always hunting migratory birds. Uh, anyway, that might be totally wrong. But, like, there's some people with these, these like, satellite telemetry trackers. Like, that's even more rare. 
and they're and it's rare because like each one of those costs like two G's. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was gonna ask, do those get returned? So I've heard of folks just keeping them and mounting their birds with them. I've heard of folks trying to hold them hostage and saying, "I'll send this back to this researcher if you send me a fake one so I can mount the bird with it." <laughs> and yeah, then there's people that are will send it back because they understand how important it is and that like this funding is. Uh, hard to get for a lot of these folks, man. And it's way easier to get, you know, a bag of 500 aluminum bands than it is to get these, these telemetry trackers. And then like, you know, then shit happens like a uh, Eagle knocks this thing out of the air or it gets stuck in a, a wind turbine or whatever the case might be. And then that, uh, that data stops them and, you know, it doesn't get recovered or it goes down in a place that's where it's unrecoverable. So, uh, but it's, it is, it's, it's wild too, because, and you hear this a ton in hunting that like many, many, many of these species, they'd be gone now if it wasn't for, you know, people that, you know, and we're talking about, you know, turn of the century folks like, John Muir and and Teddy Roosevelt and stuff who like, yes, long looking in some ways also like selfishly wanted to preserve these animals cause they wanted to hunt them in, in, in some respects. Right. But, and largely we're talking about this kind of charismatic megafauna too, mm-hmm. but that percolating effect that conservation has. And, you know, if you're preserving, if you're making good habitat for, for an ungulate species, right? Like all the stuff underneath that ungulate species is going to benefit from that as well. You know, so you're going to have ground nesting birds that benefit from that. And you're going to have small mammals that benefit from that natural habitat. And, you know, not having this like, like fence rows, like what happened to Bob whites here in Arkansas and across the South, you know what I mean? With these agricultural practices changing. Yep. And so when you're, that's why we lost them in Michigan actually. Yeah. And it's, uh, like, there's these efforts to bring them back in Arkansas, you know, like, I mean, that was a huge cultural identifier in the South, was quail hunting. Like, Sam Walton, like, the Walmart guy, that was his thing. Like, he was a quail hunter. He was a bird man, you know? It was that upland, that southern upland hunting. <clears throat> Excuse it's me. interesting. I wonder about the connection of Walmart and the decline of quail hunting. Oh, yeah, man. There's oh, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about something there. There's... Definitely probably went hand in hand. Uh, but yeah, the idea of idea of managing for huntable populations resulting in the prolifer- the proliferation of, the, of, of these species, like you know, like the reintroduction of black bears in Arkansas in the 50s and 60s, which was done by like in the game of fish, they didn't ask nobody back then. Like they just made a deal with Minnesota and I think Saskatchewan. And this is like when we had turkeys, like we'll trade you turkeys and largemouth bass for black bears. <laughs> and so they'd get a call from like their counterpart in Minnesota and say, Hey man, we trapped a black bear. And then like two dudes would get into like a pickup truck with a welded wire cage on the back after they got off work in Arkansas and drive up there get a black bear in the bed of a pickup truck, drive it back down and release it. Uh, and they, you know, they say, Hey man, we got a, we got a pile of turkeys. If you want to come down here, we got a tank full of largemouth bass for them to distribute. Right. <clears throat> that 
and you're talking about a state that, say, in the mid-1800s, when this was Arkansas was once known as the Black Bear State, you had a population of 50,000 black bears. Like Daniel Boone came here to market hunt, right? Uh, this guy named Trustin Holder. There's a WMA named after yeah. him. He did this big, like, kind of like the big wildlife survey of Arkansas, I think in the 20s, right? And he found there was 50 black bears left in the state of Arkansas, down in the lower White River drainage, like damn, like the swamps damn near to Louisiana, right? Now we've got a population that's, you know, by all accounts, probably north of 6,000 bears. Even with hunting, you have a naturally occurring uh, reproduction rate and growth of that population by 10%. But they've kind of got the population in a lot of the places about, like, where human interaction can manage it. Mm-hmm. So they have, uh, so, you know, they hunt and they're, you know, they've, you've got a bear hunt and they're taking maybe four to 500 bears a year out of the state. All of that to say that that reintroduction has been so successful that those bears, Oklahoma, Missouri, Mississippi, Louisiana, none of those places reintroduce bears. And they've all got black bears now. Oklahoma's have enough, have enough black bears that they've had a season for years. Missouri just had its first black bear season this year. Uh, they're getting back in the Mississippi Delta. Like, you're seeing them in the Delta. And, you know, people associate black bears as, like, these mountain animals. Right, they're a ubiquitous American, North American creature, very at home in the swamps. Like, look at the Everglades. You know, think about traditional, uh, like, kind of uh, Cajun culture in Louisiana. Like, black bear fat was the main cooking oil source for like the original like Cajuns and the Acadians that came down and settled those regions. So, like, it's very much an animal that's at home in the swamps. Really, it could be lots of places. It's like elk. Elk were largely a plains animal. And the reason we think about them as being mountain animals, because those the only ones that didn't get killed were the ones people couldn't get to, right? So, yeah, man, there's some really... It's weird how these things can kind of coexist and also support one another. Uh, But, you know, there is... For that to happen, there kind of has to be this, like... This acceptance of, like, a level of violence you know both naturally occurring and i would i would say like human violence towards animals is natural as well you know like we are predator species yeah we're part of the food chain as well yeah now you know our methods have changed uh but yeah man these are these are like natural cycles that benefit from from one another you know it's like fire on the landscape and uh you know, that fire is inherently a violent activity. Like, I know I did a little bit in the past. I did a little bit of, like, timber burning, like, clearing places out, man. And, like, I remember seeing just, like, fire everywhere. Like, I was about to get stuck. Like, we we're – some of these guys I worked with are a little fast and loose. Uh, <laughs> but I was, like, I got in some shit, man. And I was, like, trying to drive out of there. Like, couldn't see because of the smoke, flames ripping everywhere. And, like, seeing these deer – jump out of the smoke and like jump across uh jump across a uh like a little forest road or uh like you know there's like like one of the problems like when you're doing that kind of stuff like 
rabbits catching on fire and then like running can like spread it places For sure. you know and like whether that was created through a drip torch or like a lightning strike like that sort of thing could still happen so i'm saying like there's kind of inherent violence in these natural cycles but i guess we've kind of entered a stage with human involvement that uh, those natural cycles like have to be managed right like it we can't leave it all up to its own devices because of our intervention. We it's, yeah. it's necessitated kind of perpetual intervention, right? Deer art in Michigan are a great example of that. I think our herd was estimated this year to be 2 million uh, firearm season just opened yesterday. And in Southern Michigan where the herd is the largest, like there's fewer and fewer taken every year because there's more urbanization, fewer people hunting, and you take a walk in the woods there and there's no undergrowth anymore. Like all the native sensitive understory plants, good luck. They're mostly gone because they just get browsed. And this is, you're saying this is specifically Southern Michigan? Yes. Cause that's like a deer hunting state, right? It is. Yeah. And I would say that like our animals that are trophies are going to come from the southern part of the state. They get bigger. When you get up north, you have just a lot of pine and cedar and not so many cornfields. Yeah. Um, not so many swamps. But, yeah, it's – they're not as much a problem in northern Michigan as they are in southern Michigan, and I think it, part of that is because they do have more hunting pressure and also more natural predators. Like, we do have cougars in northern Michigan – um, lots and lots of black bears. We've got wolves, which is another contentious Yeah, issue. big time, yeah. What are your thoughts on reintroduction of wolves? I don't know enough about the specifics, actually, to have an opinion of it. That's, wait, that's not how it's supposed to go. You're supposed to, <laughs> to have an opinion about just, everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a cogent response. <laughs> um. You know, it's actually one that I've thought about more this year specifically. I just got off an island in Lake Superior that had had the last woodland caribou population. Yeah, yeah. And it, they, they're saying that that's pretty much like defunct now, right? Oh, it is. So the island is called Mishapakatan Island. And woodland caribou used to be common in that area. They were overhunted. They were just, they existed on this island because there were never that many people there. And there were not wolves on the island and then 2014 was the first year of like the big polar vortex in Michigan it was the first time that Lake Superior had frozen to that island for a long time well wolves came across on the ice and it just wiped them out started neutralizing the caribou herd um they ended up taking the caribou to another more remote island the few that were left I think it was just like 12 it was around a dozen and just like completely taking them off of Mishapakatan Island. And eventually they took most of the wolves and placed them on Isle Royal, which has had wolves and moose historically. It's part of Michigan. Um, but they always seem to be out of balance. Sometimes there's lots of wolves and no moose, and sometimes there's lots of moose and no wolves. And one of the arguments that I've heard in Michigan uh, is that's pro-wolf is that, you know, wolves will balance themselves out they won't breed or whatever when there's not enough prey the ones on Mishapakatan just like ate everything till it was pretty much gone and maybe they weren't given the wolves weren't given long enough to have that chance to neutralize mm -hmm. but 
at the end of the day, like, they did wipe out a population of caribou. Now there's way more deer in Michigan than any other large mammal. And I've talked with a lot of people that are very against the presence of wolves and the increase of wolves in Michigan. And they're like, yeah, we never see as many deer as we used to. And I don't know how much of that is just a bias against the wolves because... There also didn't used to be around. that many deer. Yeah, and I yeah. haven't been around as long as them, but man, I sure see the same amount more deer dead on the side of the road than I have before. So. Well, you know, and whitetail are like a species, like we were talking about like it was like coyotes or uh, coons or something. Like, There's more whitetail deer in North America than there was before European colonization, right? Because we've... We've, we've limited competition. So like the other big grazing ungulate species have been extirpated or eliminated, right? So you're talking about like elk, uh, probably mostly elk. I mean, moose in a lot of places. Uh, buffalo are like a huge one, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you don't have that competition. One of the same reasons that coyotes are so thick because normally coyotes, you know, you had, a gray, you had gray wolves and you had red wolves and coyotes and they all kind of kept themselves in check with each other and then you eliminate the the wolf species and then these coyotes that are really successful uh existing at the human interface like they explode uh and you know man there is this there's this struggle between like i i see a lot of value in what I would interpret as like a, a natural ecosystem, right? And when I say natural, I mean like before European settlement in North America, right? Uh, just because European settlement in North America so drastically changed uh, the flora and fauna in a way that in, indigeneity did not, right? But like my idea of of like good hunting opportunities and stuff are the result of the extirpation and then the reintroduction of these species to where you have unnaturally high levels of, you know, like probably the most hunted hunted species in North America, like the white tailed deer. Right. So like if you, if you had an ecosystem that was more natural and more like kind of original to design, you would have fewer deer, you would have more wolves uh, and you would you would be existing in these kind of feast famine cycles as opposed to what human beings want, which is predictability. Like that's what people people want that with waterfowling. And like right now, there's like this big lamentation in Arkansas about uh, like you know the flyway is changing, birds yeah, aren't I doing had what some they guys used to. Tell me that actually, I was down um, on the White River a couple weeks ago and ran into some guys and they said that a lot of people in Arkansas are like getting rid of their leases and hunting in Missouri instead because of the flyway changing. And that's something that I had yeah. not heard before. Yeah, no, definitely, man. It's and look, it's multifaceted. It has to do with agricultural systems. It has to do with hunting management, like on the flyway and like you can do stuff up at the top of the flyway that you can't do down here. Like, for instance, uh, you know what a mojo is? Mm -mm. It's like a motorized decoy that has, like, these spinning wings, and it uh, simulates, like, that flicker of 
it, it's kind of strikingly effective. Now, birds did get used to it, but as I understand, and this is before I was like hunting, but like in the late 90s when they came out, like it was, it was just like birds would dump in the holes. They just saw that. So like you can't use those on public land in Arkansas. But you go up to the top of the flyway and you can use them. Those, those mojos, they're, they're finding out, those motorized decoys are like five times more effective on first-year birds. Like they haven't seen it before. Mm-hmm. They're not conditioned to it. It emulates like a really natural, uh, far-reaching like signal. They can see it from a long way, and it brings them in, right? So it's five times more effective on first-year birds, and then within those first-year birds, it's five times more effective on hens. So like there's an argument to be made that like these – these young birds and these these uh, hens, you know, are getting hammered up north. Yeah. You're also dealing with, like, these changing agricultural practices. I think you're probably dealing with some weather stuff. You know, people think about waterfowl migrating because it's cold. And they don't migrate because it's cold. They migrate because... They froze out. Yes, because their food gets locked up, like, under snow and ice, right? Like, a, a guy explained to me, like, a duck is wearing a down coat. Right, a duck wants thirty-three degrees. They want it cold as it can be without their food getting frozen up, right? And that's what pushes birds south. And so, in these natural cycles, you know, it's going to get cold up in Michigan and North Dakota and all that stuff, and then it'll freeze up there earlier, and then we get down here and it stays open later, 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 right? You've got, you know, you got on a small scale stuff like ice eaters, which is like, you know, you like basically a little motor you throw out there and it puts enough heat and oscillates water around to like keep a hole open in a pond or something so you can hunt it. So you've got that. You've got like the water coming off of nuclear reactors and stuff that stays warm and birds can stay there year round. You've got Southern Missouri grows more rice than the entire state of Louisiana now, which is like a total upturn from the way it has been for a hundred years. You've got down in Louisiana, those rice fields, once, once they get the harvest out, you know, rice and agriculture is like a huge draw for birds. And uh, those get flooded like a couple feet deep and they raise crawfish on them and get a second crop out of them, which is great for those farmers and them trying to make a living. But that's too deep for most waterfowl to like, mm-hmm. like dabbling ducks to turn upside down and reach this, the residual seed and the invertebrates and all that kind of stuff. So you have all these different things happening. Uh, and yeah, you do have some people, uh, that are starting to kind of save some of their financial expenditures and try, try some of these different flyways. It's also why, you know, 15 years ago, like it was not, it wasn't super common to like kill specs when you're duck hunting. There weren't these huge numbers. There weren't hundreds of thousands of specs in in snow geese in East Arkansas, like there are now. And so there is like, there's a, there's like a shift in some of the birds that are coming and the way birds are using stuff. Uh, and to go back to the point I was making before, like a species that is designed to migrate, it's like designed, it's built into that species to have flux. Mm-hmm. There's, we want predictability as human beings. We want repli- the ability to replicate, Right. But that's not that's not the actual intention behind whatever this natural design was, right? Well, and that's one of my favorite things about it. And understanding that, it, it to me like understanding that and embracing that and 
adapting to it is that's like the mark of someone who really like loves these animals and loves those cycles and wants to be a participant in it as opposed to someone who wants to dominate them. Cause you can try as hard as you want to, you can try and dominate these natural cycles. You're going to lose. Right. And like the Mississippi flyway has always like we've, this flyway for thousands of years has always been a corridor for mallards. And that's because of like flooded timber in Arkansas and all the stuff I love about hunting flooded timber. And like, it's kind of spooky and surreal. And you have this area that was terrestrial that now becomes aquatic and all that stuff. Right. The whole thing that's pulling me into there are these natural cycles of these mallards coming down here to find this calorically dense food source, acorns largely Mm -hmm. that are accessible to them because they're floating on water. Right. And you have these cycles of, when the water's rising, that stuff collects on the edges of the water. And when the water starts dropping, it all pulls into the middle so they can eat it, right? To say nothing about the different, like, crustaceans and invertebrate species and the snails that are still, like, I've pulled decoys out in January and there's, like, snails on the decoy lines. Like, that stuff is all there for them to eat. That got supplanted and replaced by agriculture 100 years ago when they started planting rice. So, so waterfowlers took advantage of these natural cycles that then were kind of artificially inflated for a hundred years. And then something's got to give at some point and it might be uh, induced by humans or it just might be human beings dealing with it, but it's going to change at some point because you're dealing with species of animals that are designed to exist in a state of flux, you know, and that can literally the, the wind can change where they go, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about waterfall accounting is getting out there in the morning, it's still dark, and, you know, like, I think that I have an idea of what's going to happen from studying the wind pattern, the pressure systems, just knowing the timing of the season and my prior experience, but I'm usually wrong about something. In fact, it's I don't know that there's been a time that I've been completely right about what was going to happen. And I do love that unpredictability about it. It's just, that's part of what keeps me going out there is like, there is that drive to make sense of things. But um, just knowing that I'm going to have my mind expanded and be wrong about something and know that science is probably not ever going to give all the answers to those questions. Yeah, I dig that. That's awesome. I mean, what you're talking about is you're hunting, you're just not killing. Yeah. Right? Yes. And uh and frankly, uh, uh, uh you know, most of the hunting I've done has not resulted in killing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it, people get in their mind too that when you're like duck hunting or goose hunting that this idea of limits and this is kind of a whole another thing. No, I'd actually like you to talk about that because there are totally similarities between Limits yeah, I'm hearing about like these lists and stuff. Yeah. You know, so they've they've done these studies and they have found that hunter satisfaction with waterfowling is directly tied to limits. And that hunter satisfaction is actually higher when the limits are lower. Because everybody, like with fish and with birds, everybody's judging their success. Their success, their measure of success is fulfilling a limit. All right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, I think with the... Uh, a monetization and 
the societal capital capitalization of like uh, social media and stuff and and the, the being able to show constantly like your quote unquote success putting everything on parade yeah it's it's built a lot of anxiety around that and so uh it i think it's it has people focusing on those numbers but if you like read any like duck hunting literature, you know, like these storybooks or like talk to somebody like no one's talking about like smashing up birds. There, there's a lot of like familial lineage stuff. There's a lot of father and son stuff. There's a lot of like really beautiful like Hallmark type stuff. Right. But what we hear about and see about and is pushing our face all the time is these like like birds stacked like cordwood, right? Ways that are often inherently, to me, disrespectful, right? Uh, it kind of brings to mind, have you ever seen those pictures of like like railroad cars full of bison bones, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, that's those were, uh, I had to write a report on this in college, so that's the only reason I know this. So, you know, they, they had these hide hunters and whatever, right? kill all these buffalo right and then there was a secondary market like came by came through like the year after that people went around with carts and collected all those bones then those bones were sent to like st louis and some industrial centers they were burned down into this substance called uh bone char and that bone char is what was used to take natural sugar like sugar in the raw that's like brown and bleach it white but, like, there's something, when you see that picture, man, it's, like, sad and it feels wrong. And it's just, it just feels yucky and icky. And, you know, it's like looking at, it's like looking at the aftermath of, like, a war or, like, a massacre or something, right? And to me, that's that's how I feel sometimes with, like, say, like, snow geese, right? Mm-hmm. And you got these conservation hunts now, which we could talk about conservation hunts and how it's actually, it's not showing any real uh, effective drop in the number of these birds that are tearing up their nesting grounds, right? But it's this, you get this weird like wiener wagging, like machismo associated with it. And it's like 100 bird days, like on a snow goose conservation hunt, that's kind of like the rubric for a good hunt, 100 bird day. You know, or like we got 400 of them white devils you know like hear stuff like that or people referring to things as a season of hate mm-hmm. it's like i'm mad at them i want to smash them up right and is it, you enter into this I, I think oftentimes you enter into something that is a that's all the bad stuff of, uh, about or that has aspects of stuff that i'm not into right and look, I've been on a bir- I've been on a hunt where we killed a hundred snow geese, and I was stoked, man. Because I mean, you're talking about a shit ton of work, mm-hmm. like, because that's I mean, I'm taking legs, hearts, breast, gizzard, you know, liver, all that stuff off of those birds. I mean, you're talking about two days worth of work to get all that stuff processed up, right? But you know, then this is a sustaining force then for me and my family, right? There's like pride and satisfaction and satiation and all that involved in that. Uh, 
But this idea of like collecting sentient beings for some false sense of gratification and, you know, often this like weird interpretation of like virility or something, right? Uh, that's like kind of the height of, uh, it's, it's like antithetical to the nobility I think can be gained from this, you know? And it's, uh, and I'm, I'm not talking about like predator control or like, I mean, there, there is management, like the way that you had to trap those mice that has to happen <laughs> sometimes to stuff that is, you know, cuddlier or prettier, or like that we find more cultural value in, like, there has to be management of, of some of these species, right? Or, or really all of these species, I would say. Uh, but, you know, me personally, like, I've never killed a coyote. And I've never killed a coyote because I'm not really interested in eating a coyote, one. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't, mm -hmm. but, you know, there, there's also been a lot of research that's showing that, like, you can't kill coyotes away. Like, you kill a coyote, they start dropping extra puppies, right? You you kill out, like, dominant the dominant female, and then, like, new ones, you know. Take her place. And it's, or, like, you start killing them, and they start spreading out and starting packs everywhere else. So, like, I think that there's been this excuse that, like, it's uh, conservation when really it's kind of, like, bloodlust, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is this thing... People like it when you take the take the guardrails off of stuff, and that that enters some weird shit, man. When you're talking about killing, right? And I also think that familiarity breeds contempt. So, like, there's a lot of snow geese, and so people start to associate that with like these plague-like vermin conditions, right? And look, man, they do mess up a field. Like some guy that's got a cover crop planted, a winter wheat, and snow geese will get in there and mess that joker up, right? But, man, a snow goose tastes just about as good as a speckle belly goose, right? They're gorgeous. They're, they sure are, especially it, like those ones. I love blue geese. And the yeah, ones that are like the eagle heads, yeah. man. Like eagle heads are gorgeous. I think rosses are some of the coolest birds ever, man. Yeah. The way they flip and do those like waffling and – uh, and they're making these like huge long journeys. It's cool that they exist in these giant conglomerations of birds. Uh, and yeah, man, the fact that people road ditch them is is insane to me. You know, or like I've I've filled up the bed of a Toyota Tacoma before, just with snow geese that some guys hunted and didn't want. Mm. You know, and they're like, man, you want these birds? I didn't think you could eat them. I was like, yeah, if you don't, you want to gift them to me, I'll take them, man, and I'll process yeah. all of them. And, um, but anyway, yeah, how do you see that that idea of, like, collecting? Because you're talking about these lists. And, you know, this is something in that birding community. I guess I I had no real idea about that. Uh, it sounds like the dark side of birding. I'm interested in it. <laughs> it's totally the dark side of birding. Uh, so when I started getting... I guess thinking seriously about lists. Everybody has a life list when you're a birder. Um, I don't. And that's just the birds that you have seen in your life. The birds that you've life. seen, yeah. Um, 
I know what I've seen. I know what I haven't seen, but I've stopped caring about numbers. And in fact, like it's satisfying to me to to not uh, have a number attached to my list for this year. Um, people ask me like, how many birds have you seen? How many species? I'm like, I don't know, like probably between five and 600, but I'm not ever going to calculate it. I didn't put everything into eBird because like I did not want to give myself that chance to focus on the number. Do you think it would devalue your experience if you were recording that? I think it would because I know how I use eBird and they have an app for it. You can like be on the woods entering birds into eBird as you're seeing or hearing them in real time. And I've tried that before. And sure, like it does give you really accurate data if you want to do it from the citizen science perspective. But I'm not present in the woods at all it for that. It takes you out of it, yeah. Yeah. And I hate that. It's just, it doesn't feel right at all to me. And I know that like there's the times that I've done that, I've been like, wow, that was such a bummer. Like I know that I saw all these birds or heard all these birds, but do I like actually remember the feelings that it evoked? No. So I used to guide in this place called St. Paul Island, Alaska. And there's this idea of a list called an ABA area list. ABA stands for American Birding Association. And they've defined the regulation area of this list, so to speak, um, to be Alaska, and Canada, and the lower 48, and they included Hawaii a few years back, but at the time I was in Alaska, Mm -hmm. it had not been included yet. So St. Paul is in the Pribilof Islands, and it's really far from any landmass. It's several hundred miles from the Alaska mainland, and also several hundred miles from the Siberian mainland. And so if you're a birder that wants to get a big list in this regulation ABA area, where are you going to go where birds from Russia might show up? You're going to go to the Privilofs. And we would deal with birders that had like 800 birds in this ABA area. And they would come out to St. Paul and just spend a couple weeks in May and hope for the right weather system to come from the west and bring those birds in from Russia. And they're cool birds, but, you know, they're really, really common. In other places of the world, you could go pretty much anywhere in Asia and see them as commonly as we see, like, morning doves here. And it's exciting. Uh, You're finding really rare birds, and there's definitely the essence of the hunt and the chase. But what for me was really a bummer was I would find a rare bird and be excited about it and have one of these clients be like, Oh, that's just a year bird for me. Can you find me anything better? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, like you're appreciating only for status and not because of essence. And a whole nother layer on top of that was that these islands have seabird populations breeding that, don't really breed anywhere else in the world. One in particular is called Red-Legged Kittiwake. And I think there's just a handful of other islands that it breeds on. Uh, St. Paul Island is by far the most accessible of those. So if you want to see a red-legged kittiwake, they're kind of they're gall. They have feet that are bright red like Twizzlers. They're pretty cool. And that's where you go to see them. And people would come there, see their red-legged kittiwake, 
not really care about seeing any more of them. It's just like, okay, we've got it. And it's like, where, when are you going to see this again? Like, they're so cool. Um, and just that frustration of me being able to be out in that place for several months at a time and really come to love the birds that were common on St. Paul, but rare everywhere else, the birds that were nesting on the cliffs, like the puffins, the kittiwakes, and have people come out that just wanted little brown birds that were really common in other places of the world. And yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't want my practice of birding or bird watching to be like that. Well, they're also letting like, they're only finding value in something that someone assigned value to instead of them, them finding their own way to yeah. that assignment of value, you know? And a lot of these people, like when I would ask them what some of their favorite birds that they had seen in their pursuit of the list was, they'd be like, oh, well, I like the exclusive ones that nobody else got to see. And again, like I, I can recognize that because I'm a competitive person, but it doesn't, it's not how I like to bird. Yeah. Um, and I think also that it's just kind of an evolution of egg collecting and specimen collecting. One that's more passive, of course, at least directly. You're talking about like Victorian era stuff? Yeah. Like once a bird, ivory-billed woodpecker is a great example of it. Uh, once a bird would start getting scarce, usually the egg collectors would be like, oh, we got to get these eggs so that we can have them in our collection. And that would just be like another step. And they just wanted the, the dead egg. They weren't trying to incubate it or anything. Oh, no. Not at all. Like they just wanted the egg. What do you, so like we're actually uh, – we're probably like, as a crow flies, like 10 minutes from where like the ivory bill was supposedly seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like kind of a big boon for Brinkley for a couple of years. Right? Oh, I bet. Uh, I, had, I have so many friends that came down and looked for him. Yeah. Didn't find him, did they? Nope. Yeah. And like, look, I could, we actually can't go on that refuge right now because of a deer hunt, but uh, like I could take, there's like a, there's a spot in this bayou that like I, uh, I got fishing trips on and it's just like thick with pileated woodpeckers right mm-hmm. lots of barred owls cool man like yeah i've yeah, seen bar- swamp birds yeah uh warblers wrens uh all that kind of stuff but there's like this i've absolutely seen pileated woodpeckers in there that are freaking huge you could you know seemed like i don't know if there's a light shining off of them or they just like a bird that had a particularly light colored beak on it, you know, you could convince yourself, especially with these like Sasquatch like videos that you had of it, you know, like just this flash, you could convince yourself and say, that's a, Oh, and I've taken so many shit photos of birds that make them look like something they're not like, yeah. Flying saucer, pterodactyl. Yeah. Right. You can make them into anything you want them to be. But you know, that ivory bill deal too, man, you know, like they called it the Lord God bird, right? Mm-hmm. It's, there's something like that really like this really kind of stings to me. And, and I think most, when I think about like these extinct species, I guess the ones that I have found that kind of sting me like that the most have been birds. So like, I remember when I was a kid, man, I was just fascinated with dodo birds right Mm -hmm. like the fact that this like wonky thing existed and that just people could make it disappear so quickly or 
I've talked to a lot of people about, I've actually been surprised that a lot of people don't know about passenger pigeons and they don't, cause I've compared like these huge numbers of snow geese. It's like the closest thing I've seen that like you can maybe compare like these, like these passenger pigeon flocks were supposed to be like, and talked about how like, you know, cause they say that it wasn't, they got, they got the shit hunting out of them. But there was still a bunch, as you would see a bunch, but, like, their fecundity was, like, so, like, their ability to breed and reproduce was so tied to these huge numbers of them that once that number dropped below a certain level, it just, like, kerplat, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, like, the Carolina parakeet. Yeah. Dude, that bird, I mean, that That one hurts me probably more than any of them. And it would be... It'd be in these places that yep. I'm hunting, you know, and like they talk about the way they describe the way they would like mob up in trees. It's it's uh, you know how like red winged blackbirds get mobbed up in a tree mm-hmm. now, like just that cacophony and noise. I like like that's what it sounds like. And to think that you could just be in Arkansas like this was their native range, like the southeast and come across a hundred of these like brightly colored Amazonian looking parrot yeah. things. Uh I think they were, they were, uh, I think it was like a combination of like uh, hat markets and deforestation that did them in, right? Yeah, and I think maybe worries about crop damage as well. Oh, like they shot them because they were getting in like the cornfields? Something like that. I would have to look it up, but I know that there was some element of damaging something that was planted. Yeah, it's a... Uh, But, you know, also, and and these are, like, kind of these, like, stupendous looking or, like, uh, either by numbers or color or just oddity. But there's all these, like, small, unassuming birds, too, that get wiped out we don't even think about, you know? Uh, Well, to go back to blackbirds, rusty blackbird is totally one of those. Um, I've never even heard of it. Yeah, I'm sure that they are uh, winter in the blackbird flocks down here but they nest up on boreal forest mm-hmm. and uh, winter in uh, lowland swamps in the south and they have declined by like 80% since the 60s but they're a blackbird they're not super charismatic and also like their wintering grounds aren't super fun for researchers to get into their summer grounds aren't super fun for researchers mm-hmm. to get into and it's just been like this quiet disappearance yeah and there's like i think when stuff like that disappears there is so one like you know we're constantly figuring out that you know trying to get rid of one thing like it has this ricochet effect right and this like domino situation but also like you've used the word essence like there is this essence that is lost when something disappears that way there's like it's like pulling threads out of a out of a sweater, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you everything pu- becomes less whole. Yes, and like that interconnectedness starts to waver. Uh, yeah, it's uh, like I said, man. Like I, you know, I've given my life, you know, in many ways to the pursuit of birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this idea of, like, snuffing out sentience in a lot of ways. Uh, and, yeah, I'd give that part of it back. Like, you know, if you, told, if you told me 
that if you told me that like speckle belly geese are good forever, <laughs> if only I if I'm the only, if I can't kill them anymore, I'd I'd stop doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean specks, especially like the last few years, man. I am so fascinated with them. They're the vocalizations they make are so gnarly. You know, like uh, I got a buddy who's uh, he's he like broke off from this one guide service and started his own. And he's like he's a dude from Baton Rouge. He's like a Louisiana guy. That's like where spec hunting culture comes from is Louisiana. Because that's originally where they were like they're staying here. They're short stopping. They're really Mm -hmm. supposed to be going out of those coastal marshlands that are getting wiped out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Football field a day. Yeah. And. But anyway, man, that, uh, you know, like the Latin term for goose is answer, mm-hmm. right? And so his guide service is called call and answer. <laughs> and I like that. That's awesome. Like specifically with those specs. And I've like likened it to like this place being an old church and like this old Delta church and that like call and response type of worship, right? Mm, yeah. Like with a speck, with a speck, man, like differently than other birds. Like, they give you that yodel. You give it right back to them. Like, you work them in. Like, you talk them all the way in. Uh, and then, like, when they're turning, you know, you give them that cluck. You give them that excited, frenzied, frenetic cluck, you know. With ducks, it's like a comeback call. It's like with ducks, it's like, <laughs> you know, you're, like, kind of screaming, please, 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 please. Uh, and... Yeah, man, I'm just, I'm fascinated with them. Their plumage is so cool. Like, you know, hunters will call, like, those juvenile birds that don't have the white front on them and just have, like, tan bellies. You call them chickens. And, you know, like the, you know, what you want is them barred up ones, man. You know, Mm -hmm. they call, like, the black splotches bars or tar bellies or whatever. And, like, the more black, the more desirable, which is so bizarre because, Mm -hmm. like, when you first start hunting them, like, when you start hunting any, any species... Someone has to tell you what is the desirable characteristic of of those animals. You know, like someone had to someone has to tell you that, like, no, what you want is a a big mainframe tin for a whitetail, or what you want is this banded bird, or like, you know, what's desirable on Ross's geese is those warts. Like the nastier mm-hmm, the warts, mm-hmm. the more like of a trophy Ross it is. And like the big trophy is what they call a unicorn, which is you'll get them sometimes where they have like one big elongated one out of the center of their head. It's like, man, I want to mount that. <laughs> you know, it's like, dude, this like a, it's so ugly. Yeah, this is the grossest looking thing. Like if you <laughs> went to like the bathroom and that? saw that, yeah. man, like you'd be going to the doctor. Right. But on this critter, uh, it's like this desirable thing. Or like well, even with snow geese, right? Like. Like those blue-faced snow geese. Right? Mm-hmm. I got, I'm like, I paid to have one mounted, right? Call them eagle heads. There's nothing really any different about those birds than a white snow goose. It's just that, like, I think it's like 20% of them are in that blue phase. So it's just a smaller likelihood of you getting those. And so there's, like, this exclusivity to it that makes them. Scarcity yeah. breeds desirability. Yeah. That's definitely how it is with birding as well exactly I mean, the, the reason this place is named black duck revival i mean there's a couple different reasons for that right mm-hmm. like there's this double entan thing there's obviously the reference to this being a church the revival thing about like this kind of uh 
reawakening of this like connection to an agrarian lifestyle and being able to do for yourself and work with your hands and all of that. Uh, but also because like the black duck is not a Mississippi flyaway bird. It's an Atlantic flyaway bird. Uh, it's super rare here. It's hard to distinguish from like hen mallards, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're, you're almost just looking for like a darker hen mallard for sure. Uh, and more contrast. So, yeah. So it's like a, it's like a big deal to get one here. Like most duck hunters have never seen one. And so there's like that aspirational aspect to it. You know, the scarcity of it. I've talked to dudes up there on the East coast, man. They're, you know, they're super common. They kill like even ducks. in Michigan, all have days where, you know, a hundred will fly past whitefish. See, that's wild. Or like I took a kid hunting a kid, man. He's, like in his 20s he was in college uh, <laughs> but he was from he grew up in washington state right yep and so like he won his dad was from mississippi he was uh, he wanted to hunt the timber right we went out and it man it was just like a shitty day for hunting the birds weren't there and uh this wood duck came like screaming through right and that's like you know in the timber and like these bodies and stuff i mean they're just ubiquitous they're all over the place mm-hmm. Folks will call them like Cheeto eaters. They've got those orange, brightly colored yep. orange bills. Uh, and a lot of people uh, associate them with like, they're just the, they're the birds you shoot when like mallards aren't working. All right. So this wood duck came through and like screamed through or whatever. And I just made some comment about wood ducks. And he's like, man, if I got a wood duck, I'd mount it. And I was like, why would you mount a wood duck, man? And he was like, I've never killed one before. Like I've, they aren't where I'm at, mm-hmm. right? And, like, a wood duck is about as pretty as a bird can get, right? Yep. Like a Drake wood duck. Uh, and, man, it was such a great reminder for me because I was like, dude, if I knew that you would have been stoked to kill wood ducks, like, we could have gone and killed wood ducks. Like, that – and I love them. They're my, they're my favorite – they're my favorite waterfowl species, mm-hmm. right? Uh. But I had even in my mind from like years of duck hunting in Arkansas, I had got in my mind that like this dude was once, he just wants to kill greenheads. You know what I mean? Like he would be disappointed if I took him on a wood duck shoot. And like truthfully, some of my f- most favorite hunts I've ever been on are like me by myself with my dog, this slough that was on this property that ran to the Saline River that this dude I used to work for owned. And like, uh, he'd let me go out there sometimes and I would just like stomp around in the slough and I'd shoot a couple of wood ducks and let my dog pick them up. And then that would be about all I'd get out of there is a couple of wood ducks. And then I would just walk, walk this slough and shoot a few squirrels. Mm-hmm. I called it like gumbo Creek. Nice. I had everything for a pot of gumbo and, uh, I spent that time with my dog and like watch the woods wake up. And like, I would like, uh, I would, I would ambush those wood ducks. Like I knew where they were going to like come screaming into and land and then, you know, sit there and just like whistle on the water. And I'd like sit there on the side, like hit up in a tree and I'd let them come in. And sometimes they'd see me and jump up and they get shot out of the air. And like, sometimes I'd water swat them, which is like this big no, no and duck hunting, which I don't subscribe to. Like, especially if you work the birds in, Mm -hmm. like I did what I was supposed to do. Like, I'm trying to get some birds for the pot now. Yeah. Uh, But, 
And I think that turns into this, like, this idea that, like, being a great shot or something, like, makes you a better hunter, which, I mean, there, there's definitely the idea of proficiency and ethical harvest and all that mm-hmm. stuff comes into place. But you want to talk about ethical harvesting, man, like, uh, you know, shooting them when they're stationary is probably, and you could make an argument that that's a more ethical harvest or killing shot than yeah your seems like your wing. chances from actually having that killing shot are a lot higher you would hope man yeah. I, I've, I've missed a lot of birds <laughs> sitting on the water too that's like because you you don't think about the pattern expanding and you shoot over them but you know there's a lot of ducks that get killed uh because you break their wing and then they get chased down oh yeah and i mean like every year in michigan I used to do surveys for where they were wanting to put wind projects in out in the thumb and Mm -hmm. it's all cornfields there. And yeah, like every late spring when ducks should have left, there'd always be a few that had broken wings or whatever. They were just, yeah. It took some pellets to it or yeah. Yeah. Uh, which you know is like, I, I do think it's important to account for that stuff when you're bird hunting. Like, you know, as I understand it by law, like, if you make an honest effort to look for, like, a down bird and you can't find it, like, you don't have to count it against your limit. Uh, and that's always kind of like a fluid discussion, it seems like, on hunts. Like, are we counting that bird? Are we not counting that bird? And, you know, like, if you know that's a dead bird, that's a dead bird. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I look at it. You know, like, uh, it's not just about recovered birds. Which which also should kind of inform the kind of shots you're taking. Like these long Hail Marys were like, man, I, I heard pellets hit that bird. Like that's not a good thing. Like, and stuff's going to happen. I mean, imperfect people doing a, a, a dynamic activity. Like stuff's going to happen. But uh, just putting pellets in birds, and especially like you see this a lot too with like duck hunting like you'll, or like goose hunting like, you know, a bird will get shot and like, you can tell it's hurt. Right. Or it'll take like a 500 yard long sail down to go down. Right. Like it's time to try and go get that bird. You know, you don't just say like, it's far enough away that like I can pretend like, cause whether you broke that bird's wing or got a pellet through its liver, man, like that bird's going to die. And yeah, there is a little bit of that kind of Josie Wales type deal. Like, you know, buzzards got to eat same as worms. And I understand the natural cycles of that and something's going to get it. And I've been on hunts where we went to go get a bird. And by the time we got over there, an eagle had gotten on, on in like eating everything on it. Right. Like everything was just like a skeleton, an articulated skeleton was wild. That's impressive. But, uh, and they're like that, you know that that bird needed to eat too. Like he needed food. But man, like we we're, we keep circling around this and talking about this. Like there's all this intent behind stuff, and uh, intent matters a lot. I think with and the, what you're talking about with these lists as well. Like whether you're killing or not, like the intent behind it, and uh, the it, it informs the experience that you you have. It, it informs it it informs what you're putting into the world and also what you're getting out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, 
shit, man. All right, so two <laughs> hours. We're in it for two hours, man. I got a pot of gumbo over there that we should eat. Uh, man, is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? I guess the only thing that blatantly comes out for me that I really want to know is just briefly um, some of the formative experiences that led you from being a kid, like your experience with the outdoor world that is your starting point to where you are now. And it doesn't have to be linear or anything, but just like, what are some of those snapshots? Uh, snapshots. So like, I like only really went camping like a handful of times when I was a kid, like boy scout related stuff. Uh, I think I was like always very intrigued by the natural world and I always had a connection to it with like manual labor and like working outside with my dad and that kind of stuff uh I had a connectedness to this kind of American ideal of uh, doing for yourself and not necessarily battling with nature but like contending with it uh mm-hmm. like not trying to like contending with it as opposed to like trying to win and dominate it and a lot of that and i've talked about this before but like a lot of that was tied up in like my father's consumption of uh like westerns and like western novels and uh that whole kind of idea uh and and then when i got like introduced to hunting in my 20s from a friend and I and it happened when I, you know, I'm now married to her. At the time, she was my girlfriend. But like, I ended up we ended up living on this trailer in my uh, my wife Marianne's her family's property. And it was like the first time I had been or been in a place where like I was in like you could see deer across your driveway or like the squirrels weren't like city squirrels like they were scaredy and they right. ran away and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and I just had like access and time and availability to kind of like really go down a rabbit hole. Uh, and it, it, man, it, it just, uh, I found it to be like spiritually satiating in a way that other things have not been. And I, I find it to be a, a place that kind of for me perfectly weds physicality and, introspection and stuff that's more tangible and stuff that's more esoteric and uh, yeah I mean it's just it's something that I I feel like I gather and garner a lot of strength from and identity from and connection with and yeah, like heady shit, you know, like like kind of the big stuff in life is this is it's my place to work that stuff out. It's my place to you know, experience something that's like bigger than me, like that whole that idea of reverence. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd say, you know, reverence, holiness, beauty, all of that. Uh that's that's kind of where I find it at. Uh and it, it, I think it's also a, I think it's a, 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 a kind of a great faucet for, for honesty, 
like I've heard uh, I've heard people talk about this with like uh, might seem kind of unrelated, but like powerlifting, like weightlifting, right? Like just metal bar and heavy stuff. Like there's no way to lie or cheat that stuff. Like you can either pick this up or you can't pick it up. And there, you can have all the reasons in the world for it, injuries or body type or whatever, right? But you can either pick it up or you can't, right? And there's a, there's a uh, for mo- many people involved in that, there's like a trajectory of growth, right? Where you couldn't pick something up and then through like work, knowledge, effort, proficiency, you can pick it up, right? Yeah, I mean, that's how it's been with me and loading my canoe. Yeah. <laughs> All about and finding then, balance. And then eventually you will get to a point where you revert and you cannot pick that up anymore and you have to reanalyze your rubric for success and how you're getting meaning out of that activity, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with like this physical connectedness to nature. Like you can either get up the mountain or you can't. You can either hump down the bottom of that holler or you can't. You can either call a duck or you can't. Like these are things that you can or cannot do. And you can be lucky and get away with stuff sometimes. And there's a lot of luck involved. But it's also that idea of luck being like opportunity and preparation meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And then eventually, if you if this is like a lifetime engagement and pursuit, you will physically not be able to climb down the bottom of that holler. And you will physically not be able to get up into those mountains. Or like stomping around in like the sucking muck of flooded timber like becomes too arduous. And so then you have to find meaning and value in other aspects of it. And that has to shift and change. And and you enter these like natural, like, you know, Leupoldian cycles. And that. Mm-hmm. And do you think that having had these experiences, you know, like being able to get down into the, into the holler now or slog through the mud, like having done that when you're not able to do it anymore, um, your life will be a lot different for it. Sure. And I think it, you know, like best, there's probably some romantic notions about this, but you know, it'll be like, you know, think about like somewhat, you know, some gray haired sage in a Parisian cafe, like smoking a cigarette, talking about the women I have loved. Right. Mm -hmm. There's like that aspect to it, too. Like some of this. Some of it has hurt me. Some of it has stretched me. Some of it, you know, was short lived. Some of it was hopefully a lifetime or whatever. Right. And it all was like part of my formation and my life was richer because of it. And hopefully the lives of other people were richer because of my involvement with them and in these things. Right. So. uh, Yeah. And specifically with like the idea of of these pursuits being something that are passed down through families mm-hmm. all right looking at the things i'm talking about getting from this like this is very much things i want for my daughters right and i don't want to push it to be you can get those things without doing it without hunting right but i want them to i want them to have an association with uh that physicality and that entering into like just a, an incredibly natural, uh, these natural processes, right? I think you could probably say the same thing for like running. 
Mm-hmm. Like human beings are meant to run. Human yep. beings are meant to get out of breath. They're meant to climb stuff. They're meant to fight and to fuck and to eat and all that stuff, right? And this is how I sort out my relationship with those fundamental things. And it's and it's informing how I'm like raising my children and how I teach them the lessons that I, you know, hope that I'm able to impart to them. And you know, I think that my idea of the amount of control that I'm either able to or is right to exert against them or over them is informed by that as well. Because I'm also like, I'm relinquishing myself to the idea that I'm spending a lot of time and effort trying to understand that which ultimately cannot be understood. You know what I mean? And that which cannot be controlled. And like, I think with them, if I do my job right, like that, that's who I'm trying to raise too. Like I want to, I want to raise, you know, uh, I want to raise people like that are impactful in the world in the way that they find most fitting to be impactful in. But I like, I want them to be, you know, kind of wild, free, uncontrollable things in some way. Right. Yeah, which is really awesome, especially, you know, raising girls. Not everybody's like that. Um, my parents, this is a bit of a tangent. I'll make it quick because gumbo's starting to sound real good to me, too. Um, but, yeah, so my parents were first-generation Christians mm-hmm. and raised my sister and I in the church. And I think the way that they raised us was a lot different from the other people in the church because they were first-generation. And... I love the way that my sister and I were raised. Like, we were raised to be able to make decisions for ourselves. And if my parents saw something different from us, and it, like, it wasn't a huge life-changing <laughs> existential problem, they're like, oh, so you think you should be able to do this. How about you make a list of reasons why you should do it and reasons why you think that we might not want you to do it. And sometimes I would come around to like their point of view, and sometimes they'd come around to mine. And I had just, like, this degree of freedom that my friends that were raised in the church by people who had been there for generations had not had. Yeah. And, dude, my mom got ostracized so badly for it. Like, she did What denomination was it? Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, man, that's deep, yeah. Yeah. Were you raised, like, vegetarian and stuff, too? Yep. All right. Yep. Um, But, yeah, so... Yeah, I think that it's just really, really cool that you're raising your daughters with that intention of, like, explore things for yourself. Like, this is the foundation that I'm providing you, but I'm also giving you the freedom to, like, interpret that how you want it. Yeah, I mean, like, eventually. I mean, they're, like, four and two. so Yeah, but, I mean, you're thinking about those things now. Well, yeah, we do. I mean, we try and give them. I can remember things from when I was four and two. Yeah, and we try and give them choices and, like, uh, like I really try and communicate to him, like, like, look, I, I try not to do that because I said so stuff very much. Like, there's a level of that that has to exist, like, yes. out of safety, right? Like, if I tell you to get out of the street, you get out of the street now. We're not gonna have a discussion about that, right? I'll have a discussion with you afterwards about it. Uh, but like, I try and impart to them too that, like, all the stuff I'm telling you. Whether I tell you no or yes to whatever it is you want, 
none of it's none of it's coming from the intent of like bullying you or trying to dominate you. It's because I want you to be safe and happy. And if I'm doing my job, if me and Marianne are doing our jobs as they as they go through that maturation process, uh, they've got to have more room to figure out how to be happy, mm-hmm. right? And like, uh, I, I, I think me and Marianne both value like rampant independence and self-expression coupled with uh, community-mindedness and like uh, societal agreement, mm-hmm. right? So, and and that's probably too much of a tangent, but like just unfettered, unfettered anything is bad. Like, I'm not anti-capitalist, right? Like, I'm running a business, you know, like I want to hopefully make more money in a few years than I make now, right? I'm against unfettered capitalism and, and, uh, because a unfettered, unrestrained growth is is metastasizing. metastasizing. It's like it's what cancer does, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it has to ultimately consume the thing that it's feeding off of, right? Uh, mindful growth, you know, like always having that upward trajectory in mind, uh, but kind of working within these undulating cycles of life. Uh, You know, to me, that's kind of more of the, that that's more of the path to like enlightenment, right? However you choose to define that or find it for yourself. So like my path involves like, cooking and eating raccoons Mm -hmm. that might not be the case for somebody else you know what I mean Uh, and I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that I think that my way is the right way right but we all think that I also try and remain mindful of the fact that I think my way is the right way because it's the right way for me Mm -hmm. Uh, which is and look, man, I'm sure when my kids are like 30 years old in therapy, like they're going to have all sorts of complaints <laughs> about the way I did this. But uh, I do try and at least think about it and, and, and you know, live within a value structure. Uh, you know, if I could manifest my value structure 24 hours a day, I think I would be a pretty uh, good person, you know. Uh, the problem is, is that like no one can, right? So like you're always falling short of the glory, or whatever, you know, uh, uh, I think it's important too to be like perpetually optimistic in the fact that like if you keep trying, like that is optimistic. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like I think sometimes folks would think, like in my private life, would think that I'm like ultimately pessimistic or something, right? But I don't feel I'm that way because I'm like I'm still trying, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I might be like grumpy sounding, but like I'm still, I'm still getting up and going. Right. You know, uh, anyway, uh, I don't know anything else. Kind of. I'm sure I'll think of something, you know, two days later when I'm driving north. <laughs> yeah. Shoot me a text. Call I me will. Or whatever. <laughs> I uh, will. I will. Well, look, man, this is, uh, 
this has been like so the longest podcast uh, to date. Super fascinating. I'm I'm so I'm just so appreciative of your time and your outlook on stuff uh, and your your willingness to you know kind of wallow in the vulnerability that that breeds the good stuff. So, uh, and I guess we kind of talked around this in circles, but like ultimately like you plan to write like a text about this experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess we didn't explicitly talk about that, but, um, yeah, my goal was to collect stories from around the lower 48. And a lot of these issues are ones that have been really well covered by other people, but Mm -hmm. in less permanent forms. And I'd like to gather them together into a book and, uh, have that as just like a more permanency. Here's a snapshot of what bird conservation, bird populations, people attached to that in some shape or form looked like in the year that I was doing this, 2021, the year that I dedicated to setting out and observing. Dude, I, yeah, I'm excited to see how that turns out. Uh, Me too. And then what, so what's, are you on your way back to Michigan now? Yeah, so I'm on my way back to Michigan now. And which is great. Um, my, my family, my boyfriend will be happy to have Thanksgiving with me. And uh, I've got a couple more stories there. Christmas bird count is going to be happening. That's the longest running citizen science effort for censusing winter bird populations. Mm-hmm. And it's got a really cool history that was like, oh, we should stop having side hunts on Christmas where we kill piles of birds and actually just count them instead. And... I organize one of those counts and canoe a bunch of others, which is its own degree of excitement in Michigan during winter. Uh, Sometimes I'm knocking ice off the boat with the paddle for most of the count. And then the very last project that I'm going to do for the story gathering phase is I have a friend up in Duluth who is researching northern hawk owls and putting transmitters on them, and she's the first person to ever do that. And... um, going to go out with her and talk a little bit about, you know, owl ethics, how people treat those charismatic northern owls when they come down in the winter, photographers especially, and also just uh, be part of the excitement with her as she's uh, doing research that's never been done before and learning things that we have no idea what they're going to be yet. And yeah, next year is going to be a structured distilling and uh, compiling these stories. Man, it sounds awesome. I'm I so envy this trip you've you've put together for yourself this year. What uh do you want are do you want people to find you? Do you want people to follow you on social media or not really? I've been super stubborn about that this year. I think that now I'm in a place where I would like people to be following me because I it would have felt like a burden before, like I was trying to cater to a particular audience, which mm-hmm. I think just would have been a stumbling block for how I went about doing things. Yeah, it's weird. It's hard to navigate, I can tell yeah, you Yeah, sure. yeah. I, I know that that would have just stopped me. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, my handles on Instagram and Twitter is Boreal Vagabond, or my name is Allison Vlog. Um, so if you are interested in what I'm doing, that's a good way of finding me. Um, but yeah, likewise, Jonathan, this has been really, really cool to sit down and chat about our shared experiences in the outdoor world and find common ground between looking for ducks and hunting ducks. I've enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, uh, again, safe travels, appreciate it. And, uh, 
I'll get this rice made real quick. We eat some gumbo. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thanks. We made it to the end, folks. Thanks for hanging in there and listening to this extra long episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. I so appreciate it. As always, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you listen to helps out tremendously. And I'll tell you what else really can help out if you've got a few free moments is taking a couple minutes to write a review. Uh, those written reviews in association with five-star reviews help tremendously as far as the algorithm and getting the podcast out to more people. So if you're enjoying what you're listening to, if you could take a moment to do that, I would so appreciate it. As always, this podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. And the title track music is from Dr. Bionic, a really fantastic band out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And I encourage you to Google and listen to them. If you're interested in coming to Arkansas, hanging out, maybe going on one of these Delta adventures that I'm offering, either chasing birds or here in the spring, which will be here before we know it, I'll be offering catfish limb lining and trot lining excursions. Uh, please look me up. Web address is blackduckrevival.com or you can always find me on Instagram at blackduckrevival. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.